in over seven years of giving regular Torah classes and sharing Torah podcasts, and thank God we're over 750 podcasts. The class that we had over here a few weeks ago about Jonah elicited more feedback than any one of them. I got emails and text messages and calls. People were blown away by that particular subject matter in general, but also how neatly it fits in with the text. So even though now we're after Yom Kippur, uh, people were very adamant that they want to hear part two. So whereas before Yom Kippur we did part one, covered chapter one, we're going to cover the rest of the book today, chapters two, three, and four. Now just the background again. We have many books of the Torah, the Tanakh, and one of them is a very short book called the Book of Jonah. And of course, it is read on Yom Kippur, and it's four chapters telling the story of a prophet who goes a little bit off script. Jonah ben Amita is given instruction, go to Nineveh, plead with them, urge them, coach them to repent. Instead, he goes to Tarshish, and things don't exactly work out so well. He's on the boat, and the boat capsizes, or is about to capsize, and they throw him into the water, and the... Gale, the hurricane stops, and he's swallowed by the fish, and that's the beginning of chapter 2. Now, of course, as we mentioned last time, the Torah is multidimensional. It's multi-layered. There's always going to be various strata of understanding for each idea in, in Torah literature. So, of course, we just began the Torah again, Bereshis, and Bereshis, the first parsha, it's famous for the fact that the simple level in itself is, is hidden because it's so hard to really grapple and to grasp what's, what's going on in the, just the basic understanding seems to be way above us. And that's typical to Bereshit, but really throughout the whole Torah, there's always different layers of understanding. So the Gona Vilna, the great Jew of the, uh, of the 18th century, he writes a short commentary in the book of Jonah explaining it not on a simple level, but on the allegorical level, on a, on a little bit of a deeper level. And it's again, like we mentioned last time, it's important to stress that this is not a replacement of the simple understanding. We don't discard the simple understanding, but this is, is an additional layer of understanding that's also going to fit in well with the themes that are present on the simple level, namely the idea of, of repentance. Now, each chapter in this allegorical understanding of, of the book of Jonah, has within it a different theme. So the first chapter has Jonah. And of course, Jonah, the individuals, is that's the simple level. On this allegorical level, Jonah is a reference for the soul. And the soul is given a mission by God. Go to Nineveh. Go to this world. Perfect it. Make it a hospitable dwelling place for God. Instead, the soul wants to do other things, wants to go to Tarshish, wants to pursue material, worldly pleasures, is put in the boat, the boat or the ship. That's the body. That's the marriage of Jonah and the boat. That's the body. And because the soul is disobeying God, the soul is extracted from the body and this union is dissolved. And that's where we ended off the first chapter. And chapter two is going to cover what happens to Jonah. Again, on this level, Jonah is a reference to the soul. What happens to it after death and before it is given another chance to fulfill its mission, the mission that God had originally given to it. So chapter 2 begins, God prepares a large fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah is in the belly of the fish 
for three days and three nights. So the Gornavon explains, the fish is a reference to the grave. Now, you read that simply, it makes sense. Okay, the, the person's dead, and what do we do with the body? We put it in the grave. But it's interesting that Jonah, in the analogy, it's not the body. Jonah is the soul. And we typically understand that after separation of body and soul, the body goes to the grave. And the soul goes back to heaven, goes back to its origin. The soul goes to its origin. The body goes to its origin. The body comes from dust. It goes back to dust. The soul comes from heaven. goes back to heaven. That's our understanding. And here we see that for three days and three nights, the soul or Jonah in this analogy is in the fish, i.e. is in the grave. So the way the Gona Vilna explains this is that this person in this analogy is someone who has not yet fulfilled his mission. So there are still responsibilities on the docket for the soul. But because the soul has been separate from the body, it's no longer feasible for the soul to effectuate its mission. It's got a checklist, tasks to do, and it can't do it. And it realizes that there are very steep consequences for not fulfilling its job, its mission, that it was, it was delivered by God. So it's desperately trying to be restored to the body to be given another chance. It wants to resuscitate the body. So it's hanging out in the grave. And again, he quotes this idea. These are obviously Kabbalistic ideas. And this is the first of many that we're going to see today that for the first three days after death, the soul is under the impression that this is still reversible. The body is still warm. The body is still – maybe I could somehow be infused back into the body and, you know, restart the engine, resuscitate it, give us another chance. Maybe I could still fulfill the mission before going to have to face God, before going to have to face the judge and not having accomplished what I, what I was instructed to do before I was placed into the body. So for three days – Jonah is hovering, so to speak, the soul is hovering over the body. Maybe we could have another chance. But after three days, it senses, it's clear actually, that the the body starts to disfigure, starts to decompose, and it becomes evident to all, including Jonah, including the soul, that it is no longer feasible, at least in this variety of the body, for the soul to once again be animated in. So what happens? Now it's clear to the soul that it's in trouble and it starts to pray. In the second verse of chapter 2, Jonah prayed to Hashem as God from the belly of the fish. Now, again, we mentioned this last time. I want to say it briefly again. Every time in the book of Jonah that there is a, uh, a change between masculine and feminine, as we know, Hebrew words, like many languages, they have a masculine variety and a feminine variety. Every time there's a change, that's noteworthy. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, God provided a fish, a dug, which is the Hebrew word for a fish, to swallow Jonah. But that is the masculine version of the fish. And the next verse, Jonah's calling out to God, Dagah is also a fish, but it's the feminine version of that word. It's also a fish, but it's a feminine version. So again, the Gona Vilna, the way he explains it, is that there's different junctures, there's different levels of post-life or post-death, post-mortem locales 
in which the soul is ushered in. Initially, it's under the domain of this angel called Duma. We'll put that on the side. And then it ends up in a second place, which is called Gehenom. More about that in a little bit. And it's appropriate, he says fittingly, that the initial juncture, the initial stage, is of a masculine version and the subsequent one is of a feminine version. And the rest of the chapter is going to be Jonah's prayer or the soul's prayer to God from its very precarious state. He calls out to God, in my trouble, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. From the belly of Sheol, Sheol is one of the names given to purgatory, to hell, to Gehenna. In Jewish literature, I cried out and you heard my voice. So Jonah is making, or the soul is making this impassioned plea to God in my lifetime, when I was still alive, when I was still married with the body, when I called out to God, you always answered. Now I need you more than ever. Hear me now. And he starts to describe the situation in which he's in. You cast me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. The rivers engulfed me. All your breakers and waves swept over me. These are descriptions, again, on on one level, it's actually Jonah in the fish, the individual on that simple level. But on this allegorical level, it's a description of what the soul is undergoing now as a result of not completing its mission in its lifetime. Now it's having to have its its debts are being called in, and he's describing what he's undergoing. So he's being cast into the depths, into the heart of the sea, and the rivers are engulfing him. If you remember, in chapter 1, Jonah told the sailors that he comes from the other side of the river, which means, as we explained last time, that Jonah, the soul, originates from a different place, a different dimension, a different realm, and that realm was separated from our realm by this river of fire. And, of course, to go one way is a lot easier than to go the other way. Initially, the soul was pure, and it was able to pass through that river of fire without being harmed at all. But now, as a result of the actions that the soul participated or conspired with the body in for the duration of its life, it's got to go back through that fire back through that river, and that's not pleasant at all. It's being purged of sin, but it's crying out to God. This is this is more than it anticipated. All the breakers, all the waves are sweeping over me. The soul, or Jonah in this, in this analogy, is crying out to God, saying, okay, I've done my share. I've paid my debt. I've been adequately purified, refined, purged of my sin, I don't want to be punished anymore. And he continues, I thought I was driven away out of your sight, but I will gaze again upon your holy temple. The way this is explained is that the soul, when it was cast into this Gehenna place, it was worried, it was concerned that the worst possible outcome was its fate. What's the worst possible outcome? Of course, the best outcome is that it, it did the mission. It's given the badge. It's sent to heaven. Things are great. The worst outcome is not to end up in Gehenna, at least temporarily, but to not be given any clear directive as to where it's going next. It was concerned that it wouldn't be judged and it wouldn't be given another chance and it would be forever in a state of eternal limbo and 
eternal agony. It was worried, the soul was, Jonah was, that it was driven away out of God's hand, almost as if God's ignoring it, and it's never going to get out of the morass, of the, of the abyss in which it has been placed. But now he's comforted, after he's gone through this process, he's comforted, I will still yet again, yet again gaze upon your holy temple. In this instance, it's a reference to it being purified, this being a positive process, and ultimately, it will go to the temple, which is a reference to Olaba, which is a reference to the ultimate desire. The, the, the place where the soul covets to go is a place called Olaba, the natural, the afterworld, the afterlife. And that is where its, its ultimate destiny is. Now he's comforted after it's gone through this purification process. The soul is comforted by the fact that it will still have this legacy and this destiny. As a sidebar, we see that there is a description here from the Zohar. Again, these things are a little bit scary, but it's worthwhile to know it, I guess. It, it's a description of the purification of this Gehenom place. It talks about the body and the soul. Both of them are conspirators of the sin. Both of them are conspirators of the lack of obedience to God. And both of them are judged independently. The body is judged in the grave, turns into dust. The soul is judged in this place, Gehenom, until it's been cleansed. And after it's been cleansed, well, then now it's pure. And I think, again, this is an important theme in in Jewish eschatology, the idea that at least the description that we have over here of Gehenom, it's not a place really of punishment. It's more like a place of of purification and of, of cleansing. And in fact, I want to point out in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 20, Moses is giving his last final message to the people, and he talks about how God took them out of Egypt, mikur habarazel, from the iron crucible. The Egyptian experience, hundreds of years being enslaved to the Egyptians, is described in Jewish literature and in the scripture as being an iron crucible. Rashi explains, what does that mean? What's an iron crucible? It's a place, it's a vessel in which gold is being purified. What's implied over there is that the Jewish people, they were gold. Of course, they're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's something really special about this people. But there were still some imperfections. And in order to be cleansed, in order to be refined, in order to be purified, had to go through this experience. Now, it's a bigger subject as to how exactly the Egyptian exile is remediative. Like, how does it function as an iron crucible but that's the theme. That's the idea. And similarly, over here, we have the soul. The soul's gold. The soul comes from the other side of that river. The soul is from heaven. It's, it's from a place that it's clo- in close proximity to God. And it comes over here and it gets tainted. It gets sullied. It gets dirty. It gets, it gets, gets, it develops alloys. It's still gold. It just needs to be cleansed a little bit. And that's, that, that's the pitch that we're being described over here of what Jonah, what the soul is going through. And it continues. The waters closed over me. The deep engulfed me. The reeds were tangled around my head. This is a description of what it's going through. Da- various different layers of, of this place called Gehenna. And this idea that the reeds are tangled in it. That's a description of, of all those impurifications that are wrapped up in the gold. And that's a theme that we see throughout Jewish literature that what happens to the soul when the soul makes a blunder is that it gets, it gets impured. It gets sullied. It gets, it gets damaged almost. 
and the sin, so to speak, cleaves to the soul and it becomes very hard to separate those two. And as a result, the soul becomes impure. And here's the process that we have of untangling, of disentangling all those sins. In fact, the Talmud, the Gon of Vilna here in his commentary, he quotes from the Talmud that talk about uh, people doing a sin and that grasps onto them. It's almost, and one example it says, talks about Joseph. When Joseph was being seduced by the wife of Potiphar, it says that he did not want to be with her and he did not want to lie with her. So there's extra words. And whenever the Torah gives us extra words, it's hinting at extra things. What does it mean that he didn't want to lie with her? He didn't want to be with her. So Rashi there says, quoting from the Talmud, that he didn't want to lie with her in this world and he didn't want to be with her in next world. Implying from that, that had Joseph sinned, this would not be a one-off event. The The effects of that would be cleaving to him forever, or at least until in the afterlife it had to be removed. And that's the idea. There's another source here. Uh, it describes uh, that that the sin could bind itself to someone like a dog. Like there's some dogs when it bites, there's nothing you could do to get to 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 remove that. A similar idea that there's there's entanglement, there is effusion that happens when the sin, so to speak, cleaves. To the soul. I want to add, the Talmud tells us in the book of Brachos, page 8a, that there's 903 different types of death in the world. And the best of them is called Nishika. And the worst of them is called Askara. And Nishika, says the Talmud, it's equivalent to extracting a hair out of a glass of milk. Seamless, painless, no problem. What that means is that the, that the soul and the Yitzhahara the soul, the, the pure gold, it hasn't been tampered with. It hasn't been infiltrated by the sin. And you just pull it out, the body and soul are, are separated painlessly and seamlessly. That's the best kind of death. The worst kind of death is Askra. Well, Askra is equivalent, says the Talmud, to a tuft of wool that has been infiltrated by branches of thorns. And of course, to separate those two, it's a nightmare because they've become so enmeshed with each other that it's impossible to really pull it out. And even when you do pull it out, there's going to be flecks of wool that come out with the, with the thorns and little bits of thorns that are still there. It's not seamless at all. And that's a description, again, that as a result of your behavior, the soul actually changes. The physiology of the soul is influenced by the person's behavior. That's the idea here that we see that the reeds are entangled, that Jonah is describing what's happening to him. He he comes with the reeds entangled, and now it's the time to, to disentangle them, but that's not very pleasant. At this juncture, Jonah is certain that you know, he hasn't been answered yet. He's certain that Gehenna, this state is going to be forever. So he cries out to God to be saved. I sank to the base of the mountains. I'm going deeper and deeper into this abyss. The bars of the earth closed upon me forever. Lift my life up from the pit, oh God. Get me out of here. I'm in such trouble and it's getting worse and worse. I thought, I thought, I thought I went through the worst of it and now things are getting even worse. And then he begins to start invoking the merits that he has. 
When my life was ebbing away, I called the Lord to mind, and my prayer came before you in your holy temple. The soul is trying to now list the merits that it has to use that as a means to be extracted from this hellish nightmare, from this inferno. And it is invoking that during its illness, it tried to repent. And even though it didn't forestall the death sentence, maybe it'll be sufficient merit to be rescued from its current location. And then he points out that he really isn't as bad as everyone else. Those who cling to empty folly forsake their own welfare. Now Jonah is talking about its merits, the soul's merits in its lifetime. It wasn't like the people who cling to folly. There are people who who really don't understand what life's all about. They solely focus on trying to hoard and to stockpile their material gifts, but Jonah's acknowledging that those who cling to the empty folly, they're forsaking their own welfare. They're imperiling their own future. By doing that, they're mismanaging the wealth that God gave them. Its true purpose was to do kindness. And I'm not like those people, even my lifetime. Yes, maybe I was a sinner, but you know what? I wasn't as bad as other people. I still, at least, you know, my heart of hearts, I still knew really what life was all about. And then at verse 10, the soul confesses with a voice of gratitude, I'm going to sacrifice to you. What I vowed I will perform. Deliverance is the Lord's. Commentaries point out that the term gratitude in Hebrew, it shares the word with confession. Because both of them are acknowledgement of, of the, a truth. When someone sins, they confess their knowledge and the truth. When someone else does something good for you, and you show gratitude, you're acknowledging the gratitude that someone else did to you. At this juncture, Jonah, or the, the soul in the analogy, is completing their repentance, has been purified to the degree that they're acknowledging that they were in the wrong, and now it's the time for them to be cleansed, to be expiated from their sin, and to be spared a life sentence, and to be restored to the domain of the souls. After this process is over, God commanded the fish, and the fish spewed Jonah back onto the dry land. Now the soul, Jonah, has been cleansed, has been purified, and now it's been spit back onto the dry land, as we spoke about last time in the analogy the dry land is the place where the soul is at ease, it's at comfort, it's it's where it is, it's home for the soul. And whenever it's at sea, that's when it's again in that very rocky relationship with the body and its future is very much in doubt. As a result of the purification described in chapter 2, Jonah's now, the soul has been cleansed. Now, it's important to note that the state of the soul before it was cleansed, or before it went to initially joined joined the body, and now after it joined the body and it became corrupted and now it was purified, it's not the same soul. It's, yes, it's cleansed, but there are some scars, as we shall see. There are some lingering effects of this process. Yes, it's been purified, but it's not quite as pure as it was initially, as we shall see. But now, once again, the soul has been restored to the domicile of souls, and now it's in a place called Gan Eden. What that means is separate discussion. But now it's once again surrounded by other souls. And once again, 
awaiting its turn to be married again with a body and to be once again given the mission that it was given initially. Now it's going for round two. That's the end of chapter two, a description of the purification of the soul where all the sins of the previous lifetime are removed, are cleansed, are purified, are refined, and now it's time for it to once again get in queue and once again wait for its turn. And you know what happens? Chapter three is describing the soul on round two and this time getting things right. But it's also going to highlight specifically the role that Yom Kippur and the high holidays that they play in repentance and in the soul fulfilling its mission. So, chapter 3 begins, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is a description of the soul being reincarnated and given the exact same mission as it was given in round 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, go to the great city and proclaim it what I will tell you. Unlike the first time, when Jonah, when the soul tried to escape and go to a different place, go to Tarshish and not obey the will of God, this time Jonah obliges. He goes to Nineveh in accordance with the Lord's command. And then we're told Nineveh was a large city. It took three days to walk across it. An unusual statistic about the size of the city. So the way the Gona Vilna explains this is that the righteous... They walk with God every day. In fact, we're told many times in the Torah, we should walk in the ways of God. We should walk with God. Abraham walked with God. That's a refrain. That's a motif that repeats itself throughout the Torah. Here we're told the city of Nineveh wasn't like that. It was a three days walk across, which means that there was three days that I walked with God. There was three days where I took God seriously. And they are, number one, the first day of Elul. The first day of Elul, Elul is the repentance season. The first day we start blowing the shofar. And that's that one day they took God seriously. And then, of course, the other two days are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And God sends the soul, okay, now it's your job, it's your mission to take a city that's a three days walk across and transform it into a city that's always walking with God. And the narrative is going to show how the high holidays are so central to getting it right the second time. So Jonah starts out, makes his way to the city, and he travels a distance of one day. And he proclaims, in 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. So again, the first day that he arrives, that's a description of the first of these three days that it takes seriously. That's the first day, Rosh Chodesh Elul. And the soul is trying to awaken man to repent. And he screams out, there's only 40 days until a judgment is rendered on Yom Kippur. And we know that there's exactly 40 days from the beginning of the month of Elul until Yom Kippur. And you know what? It's working. The people of Nineveh, they believe in God, and they proclaim a fast. And the great and the small alike, they put on sackcloth. And even the king makes dramatic moves. The news reaches the king of Nineveh. He gets up from his throne. He takes off his robe. He puts on sackcloth, and he sits in ashes. The entire people, they put on sackcloth. The king goes a step further. He actually sits in ashes. So there's two points here. First of all, You'll notice that the people, they begin their process of repentance earlier. And only subsequently does the king begin his process. What that's hinting at tells us, the commentary, that the king is a representation of people who are haughty, people who are aloof, people who feel supreme. 
And we see here that this is antithetical to God. The hardest thing to change is the feeling of supremacy. For someone who can do no wrong, repentance is very difficult because repentance, by definition, is acknowledgement of one's flaws. So the king, it takes him a while. Everyone else is already on board and only subsequently does the king remove his crown, get off the throne, don the sackcloth, sit in the ashes. That's number one. Number two, we see that the whole town, they put on sackcloth, the clothes of mourning, of trying to to really take things seriously, and the king goes a step further, and he sits in the ashes. And what that's hinting at is that to the degree of someone's greatness, of someone's haughtiness, they have to go in the opposite direction. So for the average Joe, it's sufficient for them to just put on the sackcloth. The king was high and mighty. He has to go even further. He has to sit in the ashes. The greater you are, the higher your stature, the more humility you must embrace. In fact, he quotes here from the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that when there is a crisis, and the most common example is that there is a drought in the land of Israel. So there were times when the, the Sanhedrin would decree and would declare that there is a fast day. Everyone's got to fast. And the Mishnah describes that they would they would put a bunch of ashes on top of a of of a stand, and they would take it and apply it to the to the head to the forehead of the great leaders. So the head of the Sanhedrin, the Nasi, those people, they would apply it on their forehead, and everyone else would come apply it on their own forehead. And the Talmud asks the question. The Talmud says, "Wait a minute. Why is it applied to the forehead of?" the great leaders, but the average people, the regular folk, they apply to their own foreheads. And the answer is because that's more embarrassing. When someone applies the ashes to your forehead, it's more embarrassing. And when you're the leader, when you're the Nasi, in order for you to have the same degree of repentance, you have to go that much further. You have to have someone else apply it to you. Continues the verse. The word was called out throughout Nineveh by decree of the king, which the Gohan explains, it refers to God, and his nobles, which is the Sanhedrin, no man or beast or herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not graze, they shall not drink water. This is part of the purification process. And every person here, every description of, of, of an entity is different kinds of people. No man. A man, that's referring to someone who's who's taking life seriously. It's someone who's studying Torah, someone who's more righteous, nor beast. Beast is a description of someone who's not taking life seriously. Someone who's ignorant to matters of Torah. And even that, it falls into two categories. There's the livestock, and then there are the sheep. There's the herds, the larger animals, which kind of operate on their own. And then there's a flock who are led by the shepherd. Even amongst the ignorant, says the going to Vilna, there's two, they fall into two categories. There are the ones who say, I'm independent. Not only am I not a Torah scholar, I'm not even going to follow the Torah scholars. And then the other ones who say, listen, I'm not a Torah scholar, but I'm like the sheep of the flock. I'm going to follow the guidance of the shepherd. Everyone, they all have to join on board, not to taste anything, not to graze, not to drink water. That's the description of the fasting of Yom Kippur. Everyone on this day has to have a total disavowal of the physical, of the mundane, of the bodily. Cover yourself with sackcloth, humble yourself. Man and beast, Torah scholar and non-Torah scholar alike, 
cry out mightily to God, everyone turn their back away from their evil ways and from the robbery of which he is guilty. And again, like we do today on Yom Kippur, you pay special attention to the interpersonal sins. Yom Kippur, it absolves the sins between you and God, but the sins between you and your fellow man, you have to do it yourself. You have to make sure that you uh, you amend and you right those wrongs. And finally, we have repentance. He who knows, let him repent and God will relent, turn away from his wrath and make him not perish. This is a description of people who did sins willfully, who did sins wantonly, and it's time for them to repent or else they bear their iniquity or else they'll be guilty when they leave the world. So this is a description here of this multi-layered repentance process that's following the high holiday schedule that we have. We have 40 days, we have the announcement on day one, and we have this clarion call for repentance, we have this humbling ourselves, we have the denial of the physical, because that's going to amplify the spiritual, and indeed, it works. Thanks to the repentance, thanks to their humbling of themselves, God saw what they did, this is verse 10, how they were turning backs away from the evil ways, God renounced the punishment they had planned to bring upon them and did not carry out. As a result of their acts of repentance, but more specifically, their actual repentance, God seals a good judgment for them on Yom Kippur. So thus ends chapter 3, which is a description, again, of the soul, Jonah, coming back for the second round, being reincarnated, and this time getting things right, and using the high holidays as a means to really hammer home the message of repentance to humanity. Typically, we, we have three days that we take life seriously. When the repentance process, when the repentance season begins, when we first hear the shofar, that day we take seriously. And Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, of course, everyone takes that seriously. But of course, the message that the soul was placed in our body, in our world, the message that it is tasked with conveying is that we have to take that, that feeling, that seriousness, take that with us throughout the year. And if we do that, God's going to ensure that Indeed, we will have fulfilled our mission, and we're going to have a fantastic year upcoming. Thus ends chapter 3. And chapter 4 is probably the most difficult chapter of all the chapters of Jonah. On the simple understanding, really the story should be over, right? You know, Jonah, he he blundered the first time. He was successful the second time. And you know what? The city of Nineveh repented, and things worked out great for them. And then there's this whole postscript of Jonah being all depressed, being despondent, having the ricinous plant sprouting up and then losing it. It's a very unusual postscript to the story. And the way it's explained on our level is that this chapter is referring to the state of the soul in its second, maybe even more than second, go-throughs. What are the consequences of it being reincarnated? As you mentioned uh, earlier, the effects of the soul not getting things right the first time are going to linger even after it was purified. That's going to be the subject of, of chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins, Jonah is sad, Jonah is despondent, Jonah is upset for two reasons. This displeased Jonah greatly, and he was aggrieved. It's not so clear exactly what's the matter. You, you did your job. You came to Nineveh, 
They bought what you were selling. They repented. It seems like you should be all clear, all good. But there's two reasons why he's upset. He's he's displeased greatly and he is aggrieved. So the way that the Gona Vilna explains this is that this is the state of someone's life on this planet. On the second round, that state really hinges upon the origins of his soul. Meaning you're going to feel the effects in this round from actions that you didn't do in this round from the state of your soul in the previous rounds. And that's going to cause you great distress because you're like, ah, this one, that wasn't me. That was some other version of me. And why am I suffering for what happened lifetimes ago? So the way he explains this is based upon several teachings in the Talmud. And it's it's amazing because you read these teachings in the Talmud and they make sense. They're very famous teachings in the Talmud, but he's going to layer them and and and, and weave them into this tapestry based upon very, very deep ideas, very Kabbalistic interpretations of very famous teachings in the Talmud. So for example, in the book of Moed Cotton, page 28a, there is a famous citation from Rava. Rava is the most common name of a sage in the Talmud is Rava. And he says that three things don't depend on merit, rather on Mazel. What are these three themes? Life, children, sustenance. Bani Chayim Mazoni. These three themes don't depend on merit, rather on Mazel. So what does Mazel mean? So typically Mazel means, the word Mazel means luck, like Mazel Tov, good luck, or, or omens, or things that are not in your control, things that are predestined. It's not so clear what it means. It explains the going to Vilna. Merit is a reference to how you're behaving in this round. Mazel is a reference to how you behaved in last round. And therefore, these three themes, Bani Chaim Zoni, your children, your progeny, your life, and your sustenance, it doesn't matter what you do, what you're doing right now, it matters what you did last time. It's not in the schus, in the merit, i.e., in how you're acting in this go-through, but in your previous incarnations, that is what determines it. Jonah's He's he's depressed. He's like, I did my job. And why are things going so poorly for me? I fulfilled my mission. And in the question of merits, is anyone more, more meritorious than Jonah in round two? He was given the mission and he executed his mission perfectly. And yet he's depressed. Yet he's sad. He's like, I, I don't get it. I did everything right. And just nothing's working out for me. And he's sad for that reason. And what we're, we're being told here is that this is the result of not Jonah round two, but Jonah round one, the soul in round one, those effects are still influencing its behavior now. And then the Don Vilner quotes, this was so mind-blowing to me, the Talmud in the book of Brachos, page 7a. It's a very famous teaching of the Talmud, fact, we've spoken about in the past. It talks about the question of theodicy, why bad things happen to good people. And the Talmud says that Moses... In the aftermath of the golden, golden calf story, Moses is elevated to this very high level, and he starts asking God for answers to very vexing questions. And one of the questions that he asks, four questions. How come you have a righteous person and things are good for them? And then on the flip side, you have a righteous person things are bad for them. You have a wicked person things are good for them, and a wicked person and things are bad for them. We don't seem to find cause and effect between people's behavior and between things that happen to them. What's the meaning behind it? 
And God responds to him. Well, if you have a righteous person and things are good for them, that's a righteous person, the son of a righteous person. And if you have a righteous person and things are bad for them, that's a righteous person, the son of a wicked person. And if you have a wicked person and things are good for them, that's a wicked person, the son of a righteous person. And if you're a wicked person and things are wicked for them, that's a wicked person, the son of a wicked person. Essentially what he's telling you is that, yes, what determines what happens to you in this life has nothing to do with how you are right now. It has to do with who your father was. So if you're a, w- a wicked person, but your father is righteous, some things will be good for you. If you're a wicked person, your father's wicked, things will be bad for you. If you're a righteous person, your father was also righteous, things will be good for you. If you're a righteous person th- and, and things are bad for you, that means your father was wicked. That's the simple understanding of, of the Talmud. Now I want to point out, the Talmud go, goes on to give other answers to this question, and it's a big subject, the question of theodicy. It explains the going to Vilna. In light of this, uh, of this interpretation here. When it says the righteous person, the son of a righteous person, that does not mean that your father was righteous. That means that you're a righteous person in this round. The son of a righteous person previously, in your previous round, you were also a righteous person. And thus, your material well-being in this life is a reflection of your righteousness in last life. And the way the Talmud is hiding this idea, it's not, it doesn't say like the righteous person who also was a righteous person last time. The way it describes it is the righteous person, the son of the righteous person. But that's kind of wink, wink, hint. Righteous person in this round and righteous person in the previous incarnation. So Jonah, he's, he's very displeased. He says, wait a minute, I'm righteous. I, I actually did what God sent me to this world to do and th- nothing's working out for me. And he doesn't realize Maybe he does realize that he is righteous, but he's the son of the wicked person. Meaning, in this round he's righteous, but in the previous round he was wicked. He did disobey the instruction, the explicit instruction of God. And now he's suffering as a result of his decisions last time. And that's the first reason why he is displeased. And then the verse continues that not only was he displeased, but he was also grieved. There was another element, another wrinkle to his disappointment, and that is the fact that he sees the city of Nineveh. And he, he comes as a messenger of God, so to speak, to Nineveh, a city of sinners. And they turn things around on a dime. And what happens to them? Not only do they merit to be repented and to be expiated and to become close to God, not only do they have next world, they have this world too. And Jonah's like, I'm the one who's coming here, and I'm teaching them about God. And you know what? They learn. And what happens to me? Everything in this world goes down the tubes for me. And for them, they have everything. And he's so grieved by the fact that these people managed to have everything. Also this world and also the next world. That's a common theme. There's many, again, many citations for this. For example, the Gona Villain brings, uh, there's three places in the Talmud where Talmud, the Talmud tells stories of people who repented. People who lived a life of sin, at the very end of their life, repented. And the Talmud concludes by all these three stories that these people merited to earn Olamaba. They earned the afterlife in one hour. Most people need to spend 70 years, a whole lifetime, to try to get Olamaba. And these people, in one hour, with one act of martyrdom, with one act of gallantry, with one great deed, they changed their whole destiny on a dime. And as a result, the Talmud says that the great rabbis started crying. And they're crying because we have to suffer so much in this world 
only to earn our ticket, our golden ticket to Omaba. And these people, they're having a great time in this world. And at the very last moment, they flip the switch and they end up with everything. They have this world and they have next world. And that's another reason why Jonah's so upset because he's suffering in this world and there's nothing he could really do about it apparently. Maybe there is something as we shall see. But there's nothing that he could seem to be doing about it. And then he sees the people of Nineveh and things are going swimmingly for them both here and there. So what does Jonah do? He starts to pray to God for his sustenance. This is verse 2 of chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord saying, please, O Lord, isn't this just what I said when I was still my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish, for I know that you're compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger, abounding in kindness, renouncing punishment. The soul in round 2 is praying that God alleviates its suffering as a result of its previous incarnation. And he says, listen, my previous lifetime, that he didn't repent, he fled to Tarshish, he pursued the material desires, and he thought, maybe, you know what, at the end I'll have enough time to repent, to remedy my misdeeds before I died. But of course, he didn't have time. But he thought that God's slow to anger, God's abounding in kindness, he would have enough time to be able to repent before he died. And now he's being punished because he didn't have time to repent. And he wants to have God provide his sustenance now in this world, in his second go-through, because, you know, the sins of his first go-through, he wasn't so bad because he thought he would repent. He thought he would have time to repent. And then he tells God, you know, if if you don't alleviate my suffering, just kill me. Please, Lord, take my life. I'd rather die than live. He, he was suffering so much in this world in the second go-round as a result of his actions in the previous go-round that he wanted to die. And the, the Goan brings a, a very um, difficult story from the Talmud. It talks about the great sage, Rabbi Elazar ben Pedas, who's very poor. He had nothing to eat. And he collapsed. And he fainted. And he started laughing. And he started crying. So what's going on? So Talmud explains that this great sage, when he collapsed, when he fainted, he had a revelation and he asked God, well, how much longer will I suffer? And God says to him, there's nothing you could do to end your suffering. There's nothing you could do. It's baked into your mazel, so to speak. It's baked in to the actions of your previous life. There's nothing you could do. I'll have to destroy the world and start from scratch again to be able to bring about a change in your fortunes. And then he asked, well, how much longer am I going to have to suffer? Did I did I already do more than 50% of my suffering? He says, yes, okay, well, you know what? In that case, don't restart from scratch. Don't destroy the world and start from scratch so that you could create me under a different influence and I, and things could work out for me. So again, there's this idea that that Jonah is like, if things can change, I can't handle it. It's too much to bear. Kill me. I'd rather die than live. And there's a very interesting, again, famous Talmudic teaching that is being presented in the Kabbalistic light over here by the Goan of Vilna. He's saying he'd rather die than live. So typically it means, the way we understand it is that he wants to die now. But the way the Goan explains it is that it's better once someone dies, round one, your soul comes, the soul lives, the soul dies or soul separate from the body, 
it's better for him to stay dead than to come back to life. And he uses this to explain a Talmud, one of the most difficult teachings in the Talmud, the book of Ervin, 13b. The Talmud tells us that the schools of Shammai and Hillel had a two and a half year long debate. So the great academies of Israel had a two and a half year long debate over the following question. Is it better for a person to exist, to live, or to not exist? Are we better off living or not living? One opinion said, it's better for a person to have never been created than to have been created. That would be preferable. The other opinion says that no, it's better for a person to, yes, have been created than to have not been created. That was the debate two and a half years I debated this subject. After vigorous extended debate, the resolution was as follows. It is indeed preferable for man to have not been created than to be created. But now that you're created, you should examine your deeds. Now, there's many obvious questions to this to this Talmudic narrative. You know, of course, we believe that God created us. How is it possible for someone to consider that that's a bad thing? Not only that, the sages, not only they considered it, they actually concluded that it's better for a person to have not been created than to be created. How is that a reasonable position? Moreover, the postscript is that now that you're created, now that you're created, examine your deeds. Seems like a very bizarre directive. What it should have said, now that you're created, do mitzvot, study Torah, do kindness. What does it mean, examine your deeds? So again, the one villain explains it in the Kabbalistic light. This Talmud is not discussing, in general, the creation of man. Is it better for man to be created? Man for, is it better for not, man to not be created? Rather, it's discussing man in round two. You lived. You died. There's two options now. You could come back to life or you could stay dead. That was the debate. Is it better for a person to be reincarnated or not be reincarnated? According to one opinion, yes. After all, once you're dead, once you're sold and separate from the body, you can never do it. You can't do any more mitzvos. And therefore, to have the opportunity to do more mitzvos, to be given life for the second time, it's better, it's preferable for you to be created round two than to not be created round two, to stay dead. One opinion. The second opinion is no. It's better to have perfected yourself in the first incarnation so that you won't need a second reincarnation. That's the debate. And now that you were created, now that you were reincarnated, examine your ways, examine your deeds. Very deep insight here. If someone was created once and they blundered and now they come back a second time, they have a more narrower focus than the creation of man in general. The primary objective, the second go-around, is to try to fix specifically the areas that you blundered the first time. First time you were here, that's that's the primary life. And the, the areas that you that you stumbled over, those are the areas that specifically you need to focus on. So that was, what does the Talmud say? It's better for you to not be created, to not come back a second time, but now that you were created, now that you were brought back a second time, you should examine your deeds. You should try to reverse engineer. You should try to figure out what was your life 
or what was the particular areas in your life that you made a mistake last time, examine your deeds and find out what exactly it is, the specific nature of your mission, what you need to fix. Now, the obvious question is, I don't even remember what I was as a child. Some people don't even remember what they ate for breakfast. How am I supposed to remember what happened to me before this lifetime, a lifetime ago? Incidentally, I had a discussion with someone recently who told me that I have a hunch I'm actually the reincarnation of this person. So I told him, well, I actually have a hunch I'm the reincarnation of that person. So who knows? I probably should edit that out of the podcast, right? (laughs) (laughs) Which should sound very weird. I'll keep it in. If anyone's listening still at this point, they'll, they'll forgive me. How do you know what the areas that you, that you floundered in previous lifetime? So the Gona Villa tells us something very, very powerful. He says, when a soul becomes acculturated to sin, it develops a taste, it develops habits, it develops a desire, it develops a dependency for those particular sins. And you have to find the particular areas in your life where you struggle the most, either because you keep on making the same mistake again and again, and you seem to be helpless trying to fix it, or you see, you keep on desiring, you keep on coveting the same thing, and it, it's like the, this, this fascination that you have, that you're, you're so allured, you're so desirous of something, that's the area where your soul messed up last time, and that's the area where you particularly need to focus on. Yes, of course, in general, the idea, you know, for hair, we should do Torah, we should do mitzvahs. But specifically, examine your deeds to find out what particular area you need to focus on. And that is where you probably faltered last time and where you should focus on particularly this time. So Jonah is so despondent. He's praying to have his material situation improved in this world. And God says to him, no, sorry. He doesn't accept his request, tells him not to be envious of the people of Nineveh, the people who have everything, and he responds to him, are you that deeply aggrieved? And then we, we transition the story. Jonah does something else. Jonah leaves the city. He finds a place to the east of the city. He makes a booth. He sits there in the shade to find out what happens to the city. Simply put, he wants to just examine, see what's happened to the city. And therefore, he goes to the east of the city, makes a booth. Of course, there's a lot of meaning behind each one of these clauses. The way the Gordon explains it is that the soul, it realizes it can only have one world. And therefore, it embraces and dwells in the Kedem, which means the east of the city. But the word also means Kodem, which means that that preceded, it decides to dwell in Torah that preceded the world. He makes a booth which is the Hebrew word for that, is a sukkah. A sukkah is a temporary housing. A sukkah is the greatest manifestation, greatest embodiment of someone who says, life over here is temporary. And therefore, let me sit in a temporary dwelling because really I'm focusing on the next world. And Jonah is now at this time like, okay, well, I can only have one world. Let me have the next world. And therefore, let me make everything in this world. Let me assign it its correct temporality. I'm going to live in the booth. And you know what? Let's see what happens to the city. Maybe these deeds will actually change my fortune. Maybe my prospect will change. Maybe my mazel will change. Who knows? And indeed, things get better for him. The Lord provided the ricinous plant, the kikayon. It grows up over Jonah. It provides shade for him. It saves him from the discomfort. And Jonah's very happy about the plant. 
the soul was desperate to alleviate its earthly suffering and to a certain degree it kind of gave up on that. It said, you know what, let me focus on Tower, let me focus on the Kedem, let me go to the east of the city, maybe my fortunes will improve. And God says, you know what, let, let's have his fortunes improve. And with godly intervention, the Kikayon sprouts up. And Jonah's very happy about that. Jonah's delighted. But what he doesn't realize is that actually his fortunes really didn't change. His mazel, so to speak, the way things are are destined to happen in this world, they didn't change. But things did improve for him for a different way, for a different reason. He was so desperate to get rid of his earthly suffering that God says, you know what? I'm going to give him a down payment from his heavenly reward. And there's many examples to this theme, to this idea we mentioned in the past. Rabbi Chanir ben Dosa, one of the great sages of, of the Mishnahic era, destitute, so poor, and his wife tells him, how much more could we suffer? So the rabbi goes and prays, and he's delivered from heaven a golden leg of a table. So he goes and says, well, okay, well, things improved. And she has a dream, and they're in heaven, and all the righteous people are everywhere, and everyone's got a table with three legs that holds it steady, and they're holding a table with only two legs because they got a down payment of the third leg that would provide it stability, made it sturdy. They got that in this world. And she says, you know what? I'm not interested. Go return it to God. Problem is there's no return policy. <laughs> Yet, Rabbi Dosa goes and he prays and, and a heavenly hand comes and takes back the golden table leg. Jonah's delighted. Jonah's like, wow, look, things are improving for me. What he doesn't realize is that there's nothing he could do to fundamentally change his mazel, his fortunes, and the good times that he had are merely a deduction of his olam haba. And then Jonah's taught a lesson. The pleasures of this world are transitory. They're fleeting. The next day he wakes up and God provides a worm, attacks the plant, and it withers. The sun rises. God provides a stifling wind, and now Jonah loses everything. His material security that he had with this plant, but in addition, he also lost his spiritual focus. The way it's described here, he became bald on both sides. It's a description of the of this man who uh, who was uh, had salt and pepper hair, but had two wives, one old wife and one young wife. And the old wife was not happy that he had the black hairs. She wanted him to be like him, so she pulled out all the black hairs. But his young wife was disappointed that he had the white hairs. She wanted him to be just, just to have black hairs. So she pulled out all the white hairs and he ended up bald from both sides. He had nothing. That's what the Talmud says. Similarly, you have Jonah. He had the spiritual world. But then, he, then he was tempted with the physical world. He got this kikayon down payment and he neglected his spiritual pursuit and now he's bald from both sides. And again, he's like, I'd rather just die. He begged for death. This is too much pain to, to absorb. God says to him, are you so upset about this material losses? And Jonah says, absolutely. Are you deeply aggrieved about the plant? Yes, he replied, so deeply that I want to die. When Jonah's material conditions improved, it became the central focus of his life. He abandoned the Torah. And now that he lost it, he really has nothing. And his life lost its meaning. So the Lord responded to him, you cared about the plant. You didn't work for it. 
It, you didn't cause it to grow. It just appeared overnight and it perished overnight. The fortune that you had in this world, in this world that's compared to night, it was made overnight and likewise it was lost overnight. You cared so much about the material pleasures that you lost. It makes total sense, concludes the book, that God cares about the world, the ninveh, the handiwork of God, the place where the object of his creation can be fulfilled. And the final verse of the book, and should I not care about Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand and many beasts as well. And again, whenever we're describing people here, it's a reference to people that are righteous. There's 120,000 righteous people and many beasts, many people who are not righteous. Very interesting, again, description here. And every one of these ideas, and we skipped a lot, I just want to point out, we did skip a lot, skip a lot of, of the sun and what the sun means and all that. But there's 120 righteous people in the city of Nineveh. We're told, and there's many sources to this, that the Jewish nation are 600,000 souls. And of course, 20% of that, one-fifth of that is 120,000. So it's a reference that the Jewish nation is always going to have at least a fifth of them are going to be righteous. If you'll remember, you'll recall during the Exodus narrative, Rashi tells us, at least according to one opinion of Rashi, that one-fifth of the Jewish people survived the Exodus. The rest of them perished. Only only fifth of them were righteous enough to survive. Similar idea here, that the city of Nineveh, the world, a fifth of them are righteous, and there's also a lot of beasts. There's also a lot of people that are not righteous. But what does it mean the people who are righteous, who don't know their right hand from the left hand? Again, explains the going to Vilna. That, that means that the right is a reference to the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination. The left is a reference to the Yetzir Hurrah. Ideally, the righteous people, we have to find a way to worship God with both our good and our bad inclinations, with both our Yetzer Tov and our Yetzer Hara. Thus concludes the book of Jonah in its interpretation, its allegorical interpretation according to the God of Vilna. And I want to point out that although the four chapters really, really focus, really zone in on different narratives and different stories, the first chapter, of course, Jonah round one, the soul is married to the body. And it deviates from the instruction of God and it suffers accordingly. It, it's killed. It, it, it dies. Chapter two is the soul after its death, before it's been reincarnated, it's going through the purification process in the Gehenna. Chapter three is round, round two. The, the, the soul is brought back to life, reanimated. This time it follows its directive. It does its mission of getting the world to repent and the specific role that the high holidays, the Yom Kippur plays in repentance. And finally, you have chapter four, which talks about, you know, the correct priorities in life. And, and Jonah, even though he's embracing the spiritual world and the spiritual mandate and spiritual mission, he's still cleaving a little bit to the good things in life and the, and the material life. And he's being guided and, and, and nudged by God to focus on what really matters in this world. But I think there is obviously a collective theme of the entire book. Of course, the book is running Yom Kippur. And on a simple level, it makes a lot of sense. It's about, it's a story of repentance. But even on this deep level, it's a story, it's a narrative that has that same common theme strung throughout its four chapters. Of course, an element of repentance is to realize that we have a soul. We are a soul. The soul has a mission. The soul's mission was given to by God. The soul originates from the highest realms. It's here temporarily. It's here in this very uncomfortable union with the body. 
Let's try to get things right. Chapter 2, we talk about the dire consequences of getting things wrong. When we keep that in mind, it could be a very powerful tool to propel us to make sure that we don't get things wrong, we don't make those fatal blunders, we don't make those, those terrible errors, those terrible missteps and misdeeds, and don't have to suffer those consequences. And then we get a description of, of what actually happens and how we're supposed to go about go getting things right and repenting, the idea of humility, the idea of recognition of the fact that, you know, there's three days in the year that are the most potent days to awaken our soul, but really we're trying to get that attitude, that theme, that, that way of thinking, that way of living to accompany us throughout our whole lives. And finally, the final chapter is a description of what the priorities really are and how even Jonah in the second round, getting things right, A, having to suffer some of the consequences that are left over, the vestigial consequences of round one, but also even the soul gets things right, still having a taste for the material and God really showing him. It's really, it's, it's something which you get, you lose. It doesn't last. You can't take it with you. It doesn't really, it shouldn't really matter that much to Jonah. And God seems to be toying with him a little bit. But the lesson for us is that the, the, the soul is almost, or the person, the collective body of this human is forgetting really what, 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 what matters. Even after you do the mitzvahs, even after you do the repentance, it's always important to keep this in mind of the big picture, where you are, where you came from, and where you're going, and before whom you're going to have to give an accounting for your deeds in this, in this lifetime. This was an absolute pleasure and a joy to go through uh, with y'all. Uh, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. If you have any more comments or feedback, or questions, I'm always happy to respond to all the emails that I get. And I look forward to our next session, our next study uh, session together in good health and in good spirits.